welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over a decade of experience. And this is Trisha, and it sounds sort of like Tommy Lynn Sells was a bit of a Lothario. He kind of was. I think you're right. At least what his mom said that he was, you know, very promiscuous. And she said, quote, a little whore. He got around. That's for sure. So, um, yeah. Well, welcome to Addicted to Murder. Courtney and I just spent 20 minutes trying to figure out why I couldn't get the mics to start working. And it was something so dumb that I did not notice. (laughs) I didn't switch it from Windows Audio to our interface. And you know, happens to the best of us. And um, I'm still not drinking, and I swear I feel stupider not drinking. I don't know if it, if 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 alcohol made me more aware, <laughs> or I don't know. This is just like mm-hmm. I've. This is not the first thing where I'm like, oh my gosh, I know that I have blonde moments. No offense to blondes, mm-hmm. I am a blonde, um, but I've been having them a lot more than usual, and I've been getting better sleep. I've been eating better. You know, I'm on a mm-hmm. macro pro- program, like you know. I've yeah. been not drinking for like three weeks now, and I just feel like stupider than I've ever felt (laughs) maybe it's you know the alcohol was blinding you to oh so I was always the stupid I just didn't notice yep that's exactly what I'm Uh, saying okay well Uh I'm kind of hoping that's what it is (laughs) not that you're stupid we all make mistakes oh I I do my fair share of dumb things where I don't I I don't know if I don't have ADHD I don't think but sometimes I feel like maybe I do because Anyhow, on with the next um, part two of Tommy Lynn Sells, and it gets a lot worse. Yes. So, but before we get into that, no, I know. I'm just, I'm just telling people right away. Mm-hmm. Like, if you were affected by part one, just skip this whole case. Um, but yes, I do have a question mm-hmm. for all Courtney. Right. I'm ready. Um, of all of the serial killers we've covered, dead or alive. Which would be the one you'd like to sit down and interview with, and why? Ooh, that's a good question. It would be funny if we had the same one, but I doubt it. It would be. And I can press pause if you need a second. I do need a second. Okay. So, having thought about it for a moment, I think I would probably want to sit down with Israel Keys. Um, just because we don't know anything about him. Yeah. And so there's so much like mystery and like unknown about the way he thought and what, you know, got him to, to be who he was mm-hmm. kind of as an adult that yeah. we could bring him back to life and I could interview him. I think that would be really interesting. And ask him where the rest of his murder kits are, because I'm not going to lie when I'm camping, I'm looking for them. Ooh, not that I camp that much in the winter but right and I want to know I mean maybe he's would legally not be allowed to tell me this but I want to know what happened when he was overseas in the military because mm-hmm. I feel like some shady yeah. stuff happened he came back and he was different exactly and he got in in a really weird way like he didn't even have a social security number right and was in like an elite unit and was like on paper didn't exist because his parents didn't ever do anything exactly. to put him in the system. So how did he even get into the military? Right. It's a good one. I um, chose, wait, was that the end of your answer? Yes. I chose uh, Randy Woodfield. 
um, only because, like, that dude had so much going for him. I mean, Mm -hmm. he was, he had a good family. He had uh, a good, he was good at sports in high school. He was popular. He got onto the Green Bay Packers. Um, He almost got into Playgirl. Like, so much things that people might aspire to in some way. And yet he... Threw it all away. I mean, and became evil. And then the whole thing with Diane Downs, you know, like, mm-hmm. man, like his story is a trip. And it, I wonder, you know, if he would like try to charm me and use his machismo. I like, I wonder how long <laughs> it would take for him to start flirting with you. Right. And if he would like do the interview and take off his clothes because that's what he would do to female guards in the past. It would right. flash them. I mean, he would definitely send you nude pictures of himself after. <laughs> Possibly before. Oh, man. So, and he's in he's in Oregon. I mean, it's it's a potential That's uh, true. thing that maybe could happen. I don't know. He's like in his 60s now. Yeah. I mean, way more probable than my bringing Israel Keys back to life. Oh, yeah. So. I mean, we could I won't use a Ouija board, mm-hmm. but um, we could use like a channel or a medium or something. Yeah, no thanks. Talk to Israel Keys. Um, so yeah, that was my question. That's a good question. I like it. Thank you. Well, now that we're done with that, why don't you give us a brief recap of this case? All right. So last week we started talking about Tommy Lynn Sells and we learned that, um, he had just a pretty rough go of it from the beginning. He was born a twin and his twin sister died when they were only 18 months old. Um, he was then sort of abandoned by his mom into his aunt's care, um, which ended up being probably the best thing that could have happened to him at that time, um, you know, until his mom came back and ripped him away from his aunt's care and lived in stability, was, you know, the victim of various forms of abuse, eventually was groomed and lived with a pedophile for a while. And then when he was 14, his mom and family moved away without telling him. And at that point, he's on his own and, you know, by the ripe old age of 15, was committing his first murders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, Tommy Lynn admits to killing two people while in the area of Arkansas he is now in. One was a burglary gone wrong. He broke into the home of Hal Akins, or Akings, and when um, Tommy ran off after discovering that someone was actually at home, Hal ran after him, at which Tommy turned around and shot him dead. Tommy and an unknown accomplice then kidnapped a woman from a fast food restaurant near Little Rock, and they brutally raped and tortured her, and then they threw her into a rock quarry. In 1983, Tommy Lynn Sells was living near St. Louis, Missouri, and on July 31st, someone who looked very much like Tommy was seen by Thomas Gill when he was going home. So, um, I think Gil was pulling up into his driveway and he saw someone who looked like Tommy Lee Sells uh, running out of his house. And so when Thomas Gill went inside the house, he was greeted by a horrific scene. His wife and his four-year-old daughter had been bludgeoned to death. Um, his young son was still sleeping upstairs, uh, must have been unaware about what was happening. And nothing was stolen. Of course, as the husband, Thomas was a suspect, but he was cleared. So, Courtney, if this was Tommy Lynn Sells, you know, he kind of changed his M.O. somewhat. He is breaking and entering, but now he's n- not really stealing. Um, I guess there was a big old uh, 
diamond ring on her hand when he left. So he didn't even like, you know, take that. He's just killing. What do you think? I think that by this point in time, you know, Tommy is what a late teen, maybe early twenties by now. Um, and he's graduated from killing for survival, um, to killing for killing's sake. You know, he's he's found a way to release his emotional pain and that pent up rage that he's had since he was really young. And he found that it's deeply satisfying for him. You know, murder had finally given him a sense of relief, if only temporarily. And he started to need and seek out that feeling. You know, I'm cur- I wonder if he started so young because we're so much more impulsive when we're teenagers. So if he had that, like, desire, it would have been that much harder for him to not just go with it. That could definitely have played a role, yeah. Because it was, like, a pretty quick transition from the things he was doing in the past to just starting to kill people. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, So in May of 1984, Tommy was arrested for car theft. He pled guilty and got two years in the state penitentiary, and it was during this time that Tommy's daughter was born. He was paroled in February of 1985, and in July, he stole another car and used it to get near a rehab center where he checked himself in. But his mom told the cops where he was, and they contacted him at the rehab center um, because he had stolen that car. So they were looking for him. Tommy panicked because he was worried about a parole violation um, for the car theft, and he split from that rehab center. So Rory, a soon-to-be five-year-old, and his mother, Ina Court. Um, went to the Taney County Fair in July of 1985. And Ina met Tommy Lynn at the fair, and they began to flirt with each other. And she eventually invited him over to her place for dinner. When they got there, they had a, quote, pleasant visit, and Tommy excused himself to use the bathroom. While he was in the bathroom, Ina decided to snoop a little bit and started to look in Tommy's backpack. I guess she took too long because he came out and he saw her in his backpack. And he was convinced that she wanted to steal his cocaine. So he went into a fit of rage and grabbed Rory's baseball bat, the little boy's baseball bat, and beat Ina viciously. He beat her all over, fracturing her skull. You know, She's screaming, but the only other person that heard her was her son who came out and was crying and screaming as well. Tommy then slit her throat, uh, you know, killing her. He then grabbed the boy and beat him as well with his own baseball bat and then slit the little boy's throat just as he had his mom. Tommy said he did this because he could not leave a witness. That's why he killed the little boy. Their bodies were not found for three days when Ina's parents finally came to check on them. Courtney, do you kind of see where he kind of reminds me of the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez? He just seems to kill whomever, whenever, even kind of wherever, Do you believe that the reason he killed Rory was that he was a witness, or do you think he just wanted to kill the little boy regardless of circumstance? So I do see parallels between Tommy and Richard Ramirez. You know, both seem to choose victims of opportunity and without discrimination. Although Tommy was not killing to please Satan, so that is, you know, one big difference. Mm -hmm. He was killing to please himself. Um, As for the reason why he would kill Rory... I think that there's a part of him that was wanting to eliminate a witness, but I also think that there was a bigger part of him that enjoyed killing Rory. You know, if Tommy had just wanted to eliminate a witness, he could have killed him simply and quickly, but instead he took the time to beat him. Um, You know, he certainly now has crossed a very horrific line at this point, Um, 
into, you know, killing children as well as adults. Yeah, and I mean, like, you're right. He could have um, killed little Rory in a much less savage way if that was the end game. Right, exactly. On September 9th, 1985, Tommy had three underage female passengers in a car. Um, I'm assuming he's stolen. Um, but or, or maybe it was one of the girls' cars. But whatever. He was drunk and he was high and he lost control of the car. And that car flipped three times before crashing. Now, everyone in the car was okay. But he was arrested for drunk driving. And there were some other charges. Um, they didn't really say. But it was probably something to do with endangering minors. The driving charges were dropped, and he got time served for the other charges. His parole, however, was revoked in October, and he had to go back to the Missouri State Penitentiary. He was then transferred to Boonville Correctional Center, um, and here he was self-mutilating in prison. I'm not sure the specifics, but he was released on May 16, 1986. Courtney, why do you think he was self-harming? Well, being locked up, you know, he no longer had the opportunity to just kill people to release his emotions Um, but intense rage and hurt like Tommy Lynn had and was carrying around with him they don't just stop because suddenly you're in prison so I think he probably engaged in self-harm as an alternative um, to release those emotions so if he had been like say he was um, staying in prison for 20 years he probably would have just continued the self-harm do you think I think so Okay, because, I mean, I'm sure he probably wouldn't have gotten proper proper psychiatric care in a state penitentiary to work on that, but... Yeah, or if he'd been there for a longer stretch of time, um, or, like, life in prison, then he may have taken to killing inmates. But if he's only there for, like, a few months on a probation violation, then... Okay. When Tommy got out of prison, he got a new job at a tow company and married a woman named Sandy, who eventually would pass away from breast cancer. So Tommy claims that he was helping a motorist on the roadway one day when the motorist, for no reason at all, just kicked him. Tommy, of course, pulled out his gun and shot the man and left. He was then arrested for stealing something off of the tow truck, but those charges were dropped and he left the area. I'm unsure if the motorist died or not. Tommy left him for dead, but I'm hoping he survived. Um, Courtney, I don't buy that the dude just randomly kicked him. I mean, because Tommy was there to help him with a tow truck. And even so, shooting him, I'm thinking he just wanted to kill again. What about you? I agree with you. You know, One of the things we know about serial killers is that killing becomes a very strong urge or compulsion. And the longer they don't act on that urge, the more psychological or emotional pressure builds up. You know, And so because of the intensity of his emotions... Tommy had a very low threshold for tolerating any sort of like aggravation or stress and was more likely to interpret or misinterpret others' actions as being malicious, even if they weren't. So my guess is this motorist accidentally made contact with like Tommy's leg or something, and Tommy automatically assumed that it was intentional and acted out of um, anger and rage. Well, and it could also be a PTSD response, maybe, from um, the childhood abuse he got from that pedophile. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like a trigger, you know, if a guy touched his leg. It could have been, yeah. I don't know. His next stop was Arkansas Pass in Texas, or Aransas Pass in Texas. He got a job with a shrimp boat. On one of the 30-day voyages, Tommy OD'd on heroin, and he awoke some time later, but it must have scared him enough because he never went back out onto the water again. There is speculation that he killed um, one nine-year-old 
Mitchell Xavier and a 20-year-old by the name of Jennifer Dewey in Fremont, California sometime around this when this happened. So yeah, he's he's a drug user, um, heroin and, and pot and, and cocaine. cocaine. Yeah. By April of 87, Sells traveled all the way up to Lockport, New York, near, near Niagara Falls. It's thought that he killed Susan Corks while here as she, after she left a bar, um, she got in a fight with her boyfriend and she just never made it home. Her skull was found eight years later in a canal near the falls. Sells claims that two days after her disappearance, he woke up hundreds of miles away with blood on his clothing. So I'm not really getting this guy. Either he really has memory lapses or he's too high to remember what he's done or he's just full of shit and says he doesn't remember all that he's killed. Um, or even scarier, he's killed so many people that he just loses track. What do you think, Courtney? I believe that all of those explanations are possible and likely working together to create a lot of confusion for us, for law enforcement, and probably for Tommy Lynn himself. You know, we talked about dissociation a couple weeks ago um, when discussing Anthony Sowell. And I think it's definitely possible, given Tommy's trauma history, that Tommy also experienced dissociative episodes um, where he lost time and wasn't sure what happened. And then throw in copious amounts of drugs, a lifestyle that's wandering and, you know, there's little structure around time or days and, you know, there's probably a lot of things that Tommy did that he can't fully remember, you know. What we do know is that these murders did happen and that Tommy claims to have done them or is suspected of doing them. You know, it's, you mentioned Israel Keys earlier. Israel Keys would murder all over the country. I mean, granny, he had a home base, um, but it was really hard. I don't I don't think the police even know that that that. that you know, the string of murders were related for Israel Keys until they brought him in. And then he told them that. Um, so I could see how with Tommy Lynn all over the place and not necessarily killing the same victim type, not using this. I mean, a lot of times he would beat them. Sometimes he'd strangle them. Sometimes he'd slit their throat. So it would be really hard for law enforcement to even put together at this time that there was a serial killer all over the place. Absolutely. Right. And this was before computerized mm -hmm. systems. Um, so there was no communication between different, you know, jurisdictions or different states. Yeah. Um, and so you could go like one county over and they would never connect the two. Yeah. In 1987, Stephanie Stroh was on a hitchhiking trip going all the way from New York back to her home in Oregon. She and a friend went all the way to Salt Lake City together uh, before Stephanie struck out on her own. While hitchhiking, she encountered Tommy Lynn, who was um, she was on her way to Reno, and Tommy offered her a ride. He then offered her some acid for the drive, so she took that drug, and when she started to trip, Tommy Lynn strangled her to death. Tommy had stolen the truck, the truck they were using, and in the bed of the pickup just so happened to be a wash tub and a bag of quick dry cement. He put Stephanie's feet in the tub with the concrete and left her hanging over the truck bed overnight. The next day, he dragged her and her belongings to a 30-foot wide hot spring. And I, I guess this was not a hot spring that you went and you sat in. This was an extremely hot, hot spring. And he dropped her in and she sank to the bottom. Oh, along with her belongings. When her parents realized she was missing, they did all they could to find her, but the road she had been seen on was one of the most heavily trafficked roads in the country, and it would have been nearly impossible to figure out who she had gotten picked up by. 
So they even contacted a psychic who told them that Stephanie's body was at the bottom of a well or a mine near a town with with four syllables in its name. And the last town she had been seen in was Winnemucca. Winnemucca. The psychic also said, quote, I see her feet in concrete. Her body has never been found. Courtney, what do you think about the psychic? I'm assuming you don't believe in psychic abilities, but they did get the concrete bit correct and possibly the forcible town. If Tommy is telling the truth about what he did to her, of course. Yeah, so you're correct. I am a big skeptic when it comes to psychics. And so maybe they did guess some right details in this case. Um, But... There are many, many cities whose names are four syllables long. And in Nevada, during the 1980s, you know, mafia and mob bosses were in control. And we know how much they enjoyed sinking people into water using concrete. I kind of got grossed out when I read about this one because I was just thinking about, like, I don't know, the whole such, like, so hot of a hot spring. (laughs) And what that would do to a body. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they would probably, I mean, never find any of her anyway. Well, and like those hot springs have so much sulfur in them. And I'm sure Mm -hmm. sure after a long period of time that would degrade, you know, I don't really know the compounds of sulfur against like bones and calcium, but (laughs) assuming they don't work well together. Probably not. All right. So this next set of murders is I think the most horrifying that we've ever covered so again feel free to skip this part there is child killing so this atrocity occurred in the tiny town of Ina 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 Illinois Tommy gives different variations on how he met Keith Dardine Uh, he may have been picked up hitchhiking or he may have met him at a pool hall or even just knocked on Keith's trailer um, saying he wanted to buy the trailer However, the encounter started. It had a shocking end. Keith lived in a, in a small trailer with his pregnant wife, Elaine, and their three-year-old son. Tommy Lynn would eventually force himself into their trailer, brandishing a gun. Keith yelled at Elaine to run, and she grabbed her son and tried to run into the bedroom, but Tommy quickly grabbed the little boy, and his name was Peter, and held the gun to his head. Quote, shut up. Everything's going to be fine so long as you all do what I say. You got any rope? He ordered Keith to find something to tie them up with, and despite his terror, Keith was able to find some duct tape in the kitchen junk drawer. Tommy taped Peter's mouth, hands, and feet, and he did the same thing to Elaine. Tommy threatened Elaine that if she moved, he would kill her husband. He then forced Keith out of the trailer at gunpoint. The two of them got into Keith's car, and they drove a mile away to an empty field. Keith then tried to get the gun from Tommy, but Tommy fired off a shot and it hit Keith in the cheek and Keith fell back. He wasn't dead yet. Um, So Tommy got out of the car and on top of him, he then opened up Keith's pants and cut off his penis and he showed it to Keith and said, quote, I'm taking this home to your wife. Tommy then shot Keith twice more, killing him. So it gets worse. He then gets back in Keith's car goes back to the trailer, and violently rapes Elaine. When she struggled, he threatened to kill her son. So then she stopped struggling. While Elaine was watching, Tommy found a baseball bat and brought it down on her son Peter's tiny three-year-old head. He did it again, not hitting as hard the second time, though. Elaine was trying to get up, and he was pushing her down, and Tommy continued to his assault on the little boy, beating him with the bat over and over until he was sure that 
Peter, the little boy, was dead. When that was over, he started to beat Elaine. And as he was beating her, Elaine went into premature labor, and Tommy apparently watched in fascination as a tiny girl was born. This did not endear Elaine to Tommy. He did not give a flying fuck about this tiny four-pound baby girl. He found a knife and slashed at Elaine's torso and breasts and then beat the baby with the baseball bat until it was dead. He then beat Elaine again, and his final act was to sexually assault Elaine with the baseball bat, and he left that inside of her. Um, Courtney, this thing was, like, so hard for me to read. And um, can you share your thoughts? Like, why is he so rageful? I agree. This was definitely the most difficult passage that I've encountered in all of the research that we've done for this podcast. It's just absolutely horrific. Um, You know, Tommy didn't really explain his motivations. um, So these thoughts are pure conjecture on my part. Um, But I wonder if the intensity of the rage and violence of this crime could be related to kind of the family unit representing everything that Tommy did not have growing up. You know, there was a loving husband and wife who doted on their child and were happy to be bringing another child into their family. You know, it's possible that seeing a family all together like this, you know, triggered something deep within that led Tommy to kind of feel the need to completely destroy this family. Well, if that's the case, then that might explain why he killed the other mother and son. I mean, it wasn't, there wasn't a father in the picture, but it was Mm -hmm. still a mom who obviously cared for her little boy. Right. That is, that's possible. We just, yeah, we don't know. So, I mean, there's no logical, rational reason for it. It's, it's abhorrent. Yeah. It's sad. It's, I don't even, there's no words for this. Um, I really hope that they were able to, uh, like, disassociate and not feel the pain or, or what was going on. I don't know. I just, I can't, I, I have to, like, not put myself in these people's shoes because it's, it's so horrific that I'll get, like, kind of lost in it. And ugh, so, yeah, I try to sound detached. I don't know if I, if I do, but I'm trying to detach myself. And um, Courtney's a little better at doing it. I, it is something that I've had to kind of learn to, to do with, with my job and, mm-hmm. you know, hearing trauma stories as frequently as I do. Especially um, from the kids' mouths. Right. Yeah. You know, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't still, like... Oh, sure. Poke at those emotions. And... Yeah. I mean, this is just um, to say everyone, um, if you know a therapist, pat them on the back because... <laughs> This is the kind of stuff, uh, adults or children, that they listen to on a daily basis, sometimes six, seven, eight patients a day. You know, not everyone has the same level of trauma, but um, it's got to be really hard and it could be like a high burnout um, career. And I mean, I don't know, Courtney, if the things that you do that you help, that help you cope, or if it's just, it just takes a while for you to. Um, do, if you do it enough, like a police officer, when they kind of get a little, you know, they don't, the, seeing the dead body anymore might not bother them as much as it did because you just accept it and it's part of life and you detach yourself, you know. Right. I think 
some of that is is true to a certain degree. Um, kind of the more the more exposed you are to something, the more desensitized you are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think you know there's a, a conscious effort of of compartmentalizing um, and recognizing that what you can do is be with your clients in that moment and support them right now. Yeah. And really focusing on on that is the the most important thing I think for me. Well, I'm glad that you um, help all the kids that you do. Well, thank you. So, I mean, I thought at one point that I might go into therapy work, but I mm -mm, can't do it. So, good for you. Thanks. Grateful for you. Um, After Tommy moved all of the bodies into the bedroom and wiped away any traces of him, he stole Keith's car and drove off. When the police came to the scene, Keith's body wasn't there because, remember, Tommy shot him about a mile away. So, of course, he became the, you know, prime suspect in the murders. But his body was found within a couple days by some hunters, so he was, you know, cleared. But that meant they had no leads. Tommy Lynn did not hunt in the same area again. I probably shouldn't have said hunt because I just said hunters. But Tommy Lynn basically um, left. Um, So he traveled all over the place, you know, as we talked about. Uh, his moniker, the cross country killer. Um, so the murders were co- so okay. So the family was desperate to figure out who did this. Obviously, it was just so horrific, and they had no leads whatsoever. So they um, went to the Oprah Winfrey show and asked Oprah to cover it, but it was too gory. So Oprah's people denied it. I don't blame them it was daytime talk television um so then they went to america's most wanted and america's most wanted at first said no we're not going to cover the story but then they did cover the story but unfortunately it didn't yield any results because tommy is such a vagabond you know just vagrant going all over the place um anyhow so after this he went to florida and he worked road construction on i-75 He moved out of that state uh, when he encountered a snake. So apparently he's afraid of snakes. He was fishing and there was a snake in the water and it scared him enough to leave Florida for good. I wish I could throw a shit ton of snakes at him. Then I'd feel sorry sorry for the snakes, but, you know, whatever. He then went back to Missouri, then up north to Salem, New Hampshire, where it is thought that he raped and stabbed to death an 11-year-old girl before placing her on railroad tracks. Um... Before she was found, unfortunately, she got ran over by a freight train. Next, Tommy Lynn was in Salt Lake City where he charmed a woman and her three-year-old son into holding up a sign saying they were homeless and begging for money. After a few weeks of doing this, all of them got into a stolen van and went to Idaho. Well, Tommy killed both of them and dumped them into a river after he stole all the money they had gotten from panhandling. I mean, what a giant piece of shit. In Arizona, Tommy killed a homeless man that he said stole weed from him and, you know, didn't pay him back. He um, killed him while he was in the embrace of another man on the street and snuck up behind him and did it. Uh, Tommy now went to California where he had a few minor brushes with the law, but it put him on their radar. He claims he killed a sex worker there. So there are a few, you know, places where he gets arrested for things. So there's kind of a timeline that the... At the end of all this, they can kind of see where he was based on his arrest record. Right, mostly for, like, drugs and theft and, like, yeah. small, petty misdemeanor crimes. Yeah, I think he got speeding tickets occasionally, mm-hmm. um, stuff like that. So, Courtney, as we both know, these 
people tend to end up in Oregon at some point, and Tommy Lynn is no different. Mm-hmm. He went to Roseburg, uh, which is about an hour south of Eugene, where we're located, and he claims while he was there, he raped and killed a young woman. On May 9th, he claimed that a hitchhiker that was headed to Washington tried to steal his drugs, so he also murdered her. That same day, he was arrested for stealing money from a firewood stand. I think it was $30. He served 15 days in the Roseburg jail and then was released. In August of 1989, he was arrested again in North Little Rock for the th- for theft, but those charges were dropped. He went back to Oakland, then to Montana, then back to California, and he was shooting up heroin in a public bathroom when that big earthquake hit. Courtney, I vaguely remember that. I I could feel it in Oregon. I remember having um, – I had a waterbed at the time, and my waterbed went like um, – I was like seven or so, but – you were farther north, and you were, you know, probably two years old. I was, like, one and a half, yeah. I think, when So that you happened. probably don't remember Probably it, not. But no. I remember it. But <laughs> So he's shooting up heroin when this happened, and it was real big in California. Um, so he got freaked out after this and headed to Reno. He's kind of like a pussy. He's afraid of snakes, afraid of earthquakes. I mean, I don't know. I'm just wanting to be mean to him, so I'm calling him, calling him names. Right. Well... He is just human, too. Yeah. Right. I shouldn't say pussy because pussy is derogative to females, and it's actually an amazing part of the human body. That's very strong and resilient. Yes. I know. It has babies. So I take that back. He's a giant asshat. Mm. Anyways, he was arrested. Okay. Sorry. I lost my plot. Okay. So, yeah. So after the uh, California earthquake, he went to Reno. And he was arrested in Reno, and he was put into rehab. After 30 days, he was released, but then arrested again and put into another rehab for another 30 days. In December, he overdosed on heroin and was actually hospitalized, this time in Phoenix, Arizona. Okay, Courtney, I'm thinking this is our first killer with a heroin addiction. Um, I, th- I could be wrong. It kind of perplexes me, I guess, because heroin's supposed to be euphoric, and he is anything but. What do you think? Didn't Richard Ramirez do some heroin for a while, mm. amongst all of his other things? Did he? I think so, maybe. I'll Google it. Anyway. I can't remember. I can't keep them all straight. Right. Not important. But <laughs> Well, know. I've compared him to Richard Ramirez. <laughs> That's so. true. Um, so talking about heroin, right, the immediate effects of heroin are often described as euphoric. Um, because of the drug binds with opioid and dopamine receptors in the brain, um, which feels very good. Dopamine is that like pleasure um, hormone that gets released when something we like happens. And so, you know, long-term use can lead to the brain slowing production of natural dopamine, which then leads a person to need m- either more heroin or more intense experiences to trigger dopamine. So Tommy, for example, got a dopamine hit from killing people. Mm. It was very exciting to him. You know, so that could have played some role in it. He was sort of always seeking that, like, intense excitement and pleasure. Um, But then also, you know, prolonged heroin use is tied to the destruction of the white matter in your brain, which can impact impulsivity and decision-making, which he already struggled with. Um, All I'm seeing for Richard Ramirez is cocaine, but maybe he tried heroin at one point. Who knows? Um, but and cocaine also affects the body in somewhat same way, but seems to give it like a speedy element. 
Right. Mar- or I mean, heroin's more of like a slow downer down. element. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to stop for the day. And I don't, honestly don't know how long this one's going to be because I am only like very the first third of this book. And you said it goes in chronological order. I haven't finished it. Um, so again, the book that we're reading is called Through sorry, the Window. Through the Window by Diane Fanning. Um, and it's a hard read. I don't think there's too much more before we get to the end of his spree. Good. Because mm-hmm. I don't know how much more of these like horrible ugh, murders I can take, especially involving the children. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, it is your term for social media. It is. So if you want to ask us questions or share your thoughts on this dirt bag or tell us that we're doing an amazing job, uh, you can reach out to us on social media. You can send us an email at addicted to murder podcast at gmail.com. You can comment, like, follow, all those things on our Instagram, which is Addicted to M Podcast. Or you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube at Addicted to Murder Podcast. Yeah, please tell your friends and subscribe. Um, we're getting close. I mean, we're still a little far away, but we're getting closer to the 10,000 download mark. Almost. We're at, what, 7,700, I think like I that. saw yesterday. Yeah. So. And it's it's always bizarre to me. I tell Courtney this, like, when someone spikes, mm-hmm. like, for some reason, Eric Napolitano was spiking. And um, it was before I even mentioned him in our last episode. I mentioned him, but it was before even that. So, you know, I don't know. It's kind of funny, though, when I see that. Sometimes I see it trending with other things that's going on in the media right. or shows that Netflix. I mean, obviously, Trolls, Colin... Uh, there's been multiple things about him lately, so those shows have spiked. And I and I really found Charles Cullen to be especially fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, my partner Chris did not like Charles Cullen because he was disgusted by how often he attempted suicide and felt like he was doing it for attention. Mm-hmm. Um, but it still got a conversation going right. with us, so that's always kind of fun. <laughs> to do so anyhow um yeah i don't mean to ramble so much so uh i guess that's it that's it for today okay well be safe and we'll see you next tuesday bye bye